Hey, thanks for listening in to another special edition of the Christ Alone podcast. Uh, I've started up here recently another Bible study, and uh, this time we are simply going through the Gospel of Mark. We're taking six weeks to do this, which means we are going basically at light speed through the Gospel of Mark. So we are basically just flying across the surface and just trying to get a good sketch, a good outline of the life of Jesus and um, seeing him for who he is as the Son of God. One of the things that even limits our time even more in studying through the Gospel of Mark is that we will be spending time in our Bible study um, just reading the Gospel account so that at the end of the six weeks we will have read aloud together uh, the entire Gospel. And this is an intentional move on my part because the conviction that we should have as Christians is that there really is nothing more important than what the Bible has to say. And so if we gather together to study anything, um, the thing that has the most important say in the study should just be what the Bible says. And so we spend 10 minutes or so reading through the gospel together. Now, normally I would just tell you that what we have, the section that we are covering in this study is Mark chapter 1 verse 1 through Mark 3 chapter 12. And because we read together, there's only about 40 minutes of content in the study afterwards. However, I also know that if you've queued up this podcast and are going to listen to it, you will not pause the podcast. Likely you're traveling somewhere or something like that. You won't pause it and go read this portion of the scripture for yourself. And so, to keep you from missing out on the benefit of just hearing the gospel read aloud to you, I'm going to burn podcast minutes simply reading the text of scripture. So, we are going to be listening along to hear what God would have for us to hear through his inspired word in the Gospel of Mark. And then when I'm finished reading it, we will get into the Bible study content. This is the Gospel according to Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in this, their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, 
because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All right. Three chapters, or two and a half chapters there, of the Gospel of Mark. Nice work, guys. Part of the reason why we are doing that is because um, in our culture, and even in our churches today, the value of just Scripture as it is, is just waning and getting lower and lower and lower. And so I'm making a conscious decision to make us all a little uncomfortable to sit here for 10 minutes and just do a strict reading of the Scripture. Because I, when we come to the Gospel of Mark, and as we study it these six weeks, I want it to become, this is a book we can read. I mean, and the Bible is meant as a book meant to be read. Unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's a book that's often strip-mined for life principles or pithy statements or life advice or, you know, some sort of an instruction manual that when this part of your life goes bad, find out what the verses are about this aspect of your life and then it has the answers or whatever. And to an extent, that's not terrible, but it really is not the point of the Bible. It's, it's meant to be a book for us to read regularly and to learn from. And so we are just going to take and spend, you know, I only have six hours with you, but it's it's a good choice, I feel like, on my end to spend a good two hours of that just reading the Bible because if, if anything gets a voice in our study, it really should be the Bible. If anything gets a voice in our lives, if anything gets a voice in what life should be about, it really should be the Bible. And so a couple introductory things. As we go through this, really all I'm doing here is is the metaphor of stringing a chalk line. So um, when you string a chalk line, it helps you, you know, you know where you're going to, the guys know what I'm talking about, maybe the girls too that have done some construction stuff. You string a chalk line and it tells you where you want to start digging or lay the boards down or whatever you're going to do or where to cut, but you don't really do anything yet. You just kind of get an idea of this is how the line should look once we get done. So it can be very long, but it's not very deep. A chalk line, by definition, is not deep at all. It's just kind of right across the surface. And so one of your tasks as we study the Gospel of Mark in these six weeks when you're here is praying and asking the Holy Spirit to kind of illumine to you areas along the chalk line that you think, oh, I've never thought of that, or that's an interesting aspect of the life of Jesus. I would like to, now that this chalk line is laid out, I'd like to come back in and study more about this issue or think more about this issue with Jesus. So um, we're just kind of wanting to run right across the top of the gospel. So we're just going to, now in the remainder of this time, we're just going to work, work and walk through what we just have read and give a little bit of detail, but probably not as much and definitely not as much as you could. If we actually exposited, which is just worked verse by verse through Mark in six weeks, I don't think we'd make it out of chapter one. So we're flying through it, which is why I need to move on with what I'm saying. So the second thing is that the gospel is the, the gospels are not good advice; they are good news. And sometimes we come to the Bible in the same way, looking for good advice. But the Bible is good news. It isn't advice; it's a message. And so we're not gathering primarily to try to learn what to do. We're gathering that we might see. So oftentimes, you know, people come to church, we're, we're pragmatists at heart. We want 
practical application. Tell me what to do. And so we want to do a Bible study. It tells us here's five steps to this or whatever. And, and for whatever those are worth. But primarily the Gospels are not advice. They are a message. So they're not here to tell us what to do so much as to help us see what's already been done. This is this is historical narrative. This is history that we're reading here. So we want to try to change. I mean, and that's I know you maybe could talk about this a little bit if you wanted to, or think about it and share later if you want to. But it's a switch sometimes in our minds when we are very much wired into steps and what's next and all of these things to do. It's 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 tough. To switch our mind off from, I'm not looking for a list of to-do. I'm reading just to see what has been done. I want to hear this as good news. And so, yes, we will be, as I've said, reading the whole gospel uh, in this in this study. So, we'll get on with our outline because now we have 34 minutes left in our study. But that's not a bad thing. We, we've read our Bible, so that's good. So, in our outline here, we've got... Just a few introductory issues of the overview of the Gospel of Mark. I got just kind of three basic questions there. <clears throat> Who wrote the book? Does anybody have one have a guess of an answer on that one? Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Mark. That's a great guess. That is a great guess. Yes, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. But I want to take just a few minutes and tie this into reality as well. Uh, Gosh, I read Joel all kinds of stories, and you know, my one of my personal favorites is Beauty and the Beast. Go ahead and mock me if you want to, but I like Beauty and the Beast, and so we. Sorry, Eddie, and so we'll read. The, uh, yeah, I felt like a judge. Uh, well, maybe you do. It's it's a good story. You should. Uh, but you know, lots of times we read things like this, and they become fable or fairy tale or something along those lines, and that's not what this is. Mark is a real dude. So if we go to our book Bible and go to the book of Acts. Just a, a, a brief overview of some interesting things about Mark. In Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 13, we see that uh, his name is John Mark. Actually, for a while, was with the Apostle Paul. And he actually was a deserter of the Apostle Paul. They went on this um, missionary journey into Asia. And Mark, uh, I, I don't I want to say he chickens out, but it's kind of like he leaves them. It says, verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and in Pisidia. That John there is John Mark. That's the writer of this gospel. We, we learn this more. We go down to chapter 15 in the book of Acts and 36 through 41. Paul and Barnabas separate here. And uh, this is because Barnabas wants to take along with them in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called. Are you reading along there? Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Huh? It was called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So this is this John Mark. He's been a deserter and to such an extent he's made Paul mad. Paul's like, I don't want that guy with me. He took off last time. Forget him. He's evidently a cousin here of Barnabas. So uh, there's bad blood, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, between the apostle Paul, between good Christian men. Sometimes there are disagreements and even 
they, they decide not to minister to each other. However, it doesn't end there. We go on back to 2 Timothy. So flip on back in your Bible even deeper. 2 Timothy, if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. This is a letter of the Apostle Paul to his young student, his son in the faith, to Timothy, ministering in Ephesus. And he says in verse 9, starting in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So something's happened here at some point along the way that evidently Mark and Paul have made up. And now Paul is saying Mark is very useful to him in ministry. And so there's kind of Mark's relationship with the Apostle Paul. Requirements to be a writer of the New Testament would be to be an apostle or to have had direct connection with an apostle. If you're, if you're, not, if you're any of those things, you can't write the New Testament. You and I, we're, we're all out. We can't write a new book in the New Testament. It's, it's apostolic. So either it was an apostle or someone who's connected to an apostle. So you think, well, here's this connection between Mark and Paul. So is that the reason why Paul or Mark gets to write the uh, New Testament book is because of his connection with Paul? No, most likely it isn't. It is actually Peter is the guy. We go back to 1 Peter, a little further back in your Bible. 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, and 3 John. So we're clear back by Revelation, Jude Revelation. So this is 1 Peter 5, 13. Peter has something to say about Mark as well. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark. And what's the, what's the, the, uh, whatever, title that he gives to Mark? Calls him his son. So what we learn and we see from other places and that Mark was intimately acquainted with the Apostle Peter. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, what is interesting to put in the back of your mind is that this most likely is, in one extent or another, the Gospel of Peter. This would have been Peter's firsthand telling of stories to Mark that he then recorded and wrote down. Sup, Dennis? How you doing? So he, this is... This is likely Peter's information. It isn't all chronologically laid out, but it's stories that, Peter, that Mark gathered from Peter and recorded down. Mark likely is the first gospel written. This is just introductory stuff, so we're trying to get through it. Mark is likely the first gospel written. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic, you can think similar, synoptic. They're the synoptic gospels. They all have share a large percentage of the same content. It's likely that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as kind of a blueprint and then came back in and put the stories back in more chronological order, put in some extra teachings and things like that. But Mark likely was the first gospel written coming down straight from Peter. So likely this, it's interesting when you think of it that way because Peter shows up a lot in this gospel more than any other gospel. And the times that Peter shows up, he's not favorably mentioned. It's an interesting thing to read historical accounts 
you talk about the reliabilities of Scripture and the reliabilities of the Gospels, and are these made-up um, books? Did Christians just create these books to have out there to, to support their faith? Well, if you were going to create a book to support a faith that had you as a primary character, what light would you put yourself in? Would you tell stories about your failure to walk on water and sinking? Would you tell this part of the story where you confess Jesus as the Christ and then later tell him, he's, don't go to the cross, and he says, get behind me, Satan? I mean, Peter's called Satan here. So, I mean, he's really cat. Would you conclude the part where you deny Jesus three times? I'd probably leave that out, but it's included here. This is a, an accurate uh, retelling of, of the life of Jesus. It's arranged in 16 chapters, so we have a, a nice dividing line at the end of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 8, where we have the confession at Caesarea Philippi, where, G, where Peter confesses, you are the Christ, uh, and, and then there's the Mount of Transfiguration that happens. But there's this dividing line, all this working of Jesus in Galilee ministering, and then the Mount of Transfiguration, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. So they're kind of evenly spit, split in the two halves. Enough on that. The purpose. Why are we reading this? There's a purpose statement right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't delay in telling us why he wrote this. Why does Mark bother to write about um, this Gospel? He says this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has a point in writing this. He's trying to communicate something. He's trying to help us see Jesus, the Son of God. Many other places, you, when we go along here, you'll see that the demons recognize Jesus. And what do they say? You are the Son of the living God. If we go to the... That's right. So, go, I want you guys and, and to, Mark by the there, way. He always says, but he doesn't want them to mm -hmm. announce who he is. Yeah. Why is that? wasn't his time. Hmm. We'll get there. But, I mean, yeah, it's a great... It's interesting that every yeah. time he's like, don't... Not, well, eventually, eventually it doesn't go that way. But at the beginning, especially to these first eight chapters, Jesus is putting off uh, his time. He knows when his time is. And so, he, so he's already doing the miracle of yeah. healing them. Yeah. So why not let them... Is he doing that just out of the goodness of his heart, or is he... Well, we, we, we'll see here one of the reasons why he does is it really hinders his ability to minister. He doesn't want people to be crowding around him. The other reason would have been, and we can get to it, is that um, Jesus, the people had this view of an earthly king. And at one point, they want to take Jesus and make him king, force him to make him king. And he has to sneak away and get out between them because it wasn't his time. Jesus had a mission. And the mission ultimately was to be crucified on a cross in Jerusalem at Passover at the end of his ministry. So he had a timeline that he was, I mean, and it's interesting to talk about the sovereignty of God because what happened, happened. But there isn't, he knew it was going to happen. He knew they were going to go tell. But he's, he's on a mission. He's got a purpose. And it wasn't, it wasn't this fame of miracle worker to that extent. It was ultimately go to the cross. So he, he tries to delay those things. So, but the purpose is to reveal. I mean, I've got I've got tons of of issue of places here we can look. The in one of the ending statements in the Gospel of Mark is the centurion at the cross, and the Jesus hangs on the cross, dies, and the centurion, the Roman official, the guard there says, "Surely this man was 
the Son of God. And so we have these bookends of the Gospel of Mark trying to drive home to us to help us see Jesus as the Son of God. Possibly a central statement. You could work on memorizing, thinking about, is Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. That's why the book was written. So, flying through content, and uh, that's what I do. So, I, if you guys didn't figure that out from the last six week study, then sorry. So, Sarah Beer, she's the one watching her innocently and didn't know that I, <laughs> that I just, she, I just. You know, so so here's my other question I came up with reading was um, when Peter, or not Peter, um, Paul says, go get, go get um, Mark. Mm-hmm. How the heck back then did they do that? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or go on a mission in Asia. I mean, that'd take years. Oh, yeah. I mean, the travels were outrageous. 13 hours by plane. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> by plane. By plane. This is like camel. Yeah. These guys are on foot or, yeah, over, yeah. So go get him and bring him back to yeah. him. Where are you going to be? Well, I mean. How did they stay in contact? They didn't have the post office. They didn't have the good post office back then. They did. They sent their letters back and forth. You see, from Colossians, they got Epaphroditus or Epaphras. Epaphras. Anyway, that that they're passing these letters back and forth, and Epaphras brings in a letter with a gift, and then he sends Epaphras back and says, "Hey, send Timothy back to me soon." So Paul kind of had an idea of who was ministering where. He kind of was knew. You know, he knew Timothy was ministering Ephesus. Runners or whatever, people are just possibly. Well, I mean, and honestly, on a, there's a case for that the timing of the arrival of Jesus depended a lot upon the, the Greco, the Romanization of what Hellenization of the, of the ancient world. That they were, it was just the right time that Greek was a common language that everyone spoke. Rome had built highways and byways to get to all these places so people were able to travel for the spread of the gospel. So it was an interesting time that Jesus enters. It wasn't during the age of the internet, but it was during the age of there was Hellenization that uh, there was, you know, relative peace, centralized roads to different places, probably a mail system of some sort where people could travel easily, and a common language, which is what the Gospel of Mark is written in, is Koine Greek. There was a common language that people spoke to... um, to get all this stuff going. So, now we have a few minutes to 20 minutes to get through <laughs> two and a half chapters here. So, first off is just this introduction with John the Baptist. What do you guys, when you think of John the Baptist, what's the picture in your head of who John the Baptist is? Crazy looking guy. Crazy looking guy. Wearing a coat of, wearing a coat of really gross hair. I mean, it's camel's hair. So it's really rough hair. <laughs> And he's and where where does he do ministry? In the Jordan. In the Jordan, out but it's like in a big uh, is it in the city. It's it's out in the wilderness. Um, so Mark here is, is going to tell us. He's cousin to Jesus. He left. In yes. The right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's in Luke's gospel. Yeah. See where Mark doesn't. One of the reasons why Mark is only sixteen chapters. It's it's action. So you can go to all sorts of cross references and Luke. Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy. Luke starts his with Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist. 
But Mark just kind of has a few verses here about John the Baptist. And so you could go to Luke and read a lot more about John the Baptist and, and John as well. But um, Mark just is, he's all about let's get to the point. And so he's moving right along and he brings up uh, John the Baptist here and he's this guy. But, but why does he bother mentioning John the Baptist? If this is about Jesus, the Son of God, why even bother mentioning, mentioning John the Baptist? Well, we have this quote here, right? It says, as written in Isaiah the prophet. This is actually from Malachi and Isaiah. Um, likely just said Isaiah because Isaiah was the well-known prophet there. But in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, there's this coming messenger that the Jews are to be looking for. It's Malachi chapter 3, and there's a part in chapter 5 that talks about the coming messenger before the God of justice. So they're looking, there's, there's supposed to be this messenger coming who's going to make way for God to show up. And so John the Baptist comes in, and he is the fulfillment of this prophecy here in Isaiah and in Malachi. He's the spirit of Elijah, which is why he's eating locusts and honey and clothed with camel's hair. We can see that uh, from the prophet Elijah, very similar, ministering in the wilderness. But he is this forerunner to Jesus. We could spend a lot of time talking about him. But the main reason John shows up is to point to Jesus. He's, John is not the main event. John is, John, Jesus actually says, John, no one uh, born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. He's got a high esteem for John the Baptist. But at the end of the day, he's really just here for us to, wait a second, all of this, if we knew our Old Testament real well, we have said, we're supposed to be looking for a messenger that's coming. And all of a sudden, bam, this messenger shows up. He's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. But the main reason why John shows up is to point to Jesus. And we see this clearly in verse 8 or verse 7. John was extremely popular. Um, crowds, multitudes were coming out from the city to see John. Does it not say this? All the country, verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, being baptized by him in the river Jordan. This dude had a thriving megachurch. He had a he had a, a multi, I mean, not a multi-site, but he had a, he had a ministry that was just... The first to baptize? Well, we don't know. And it, the, where baptism came from, we don't know because Jewish culture has lots of ritual washings, but we don't really know where baptism came from. It could have came straight from God to John the Baptist. <laughs> Could have been a, a type of a ritual washing that they were doing. Don't really know where it came from. Just that he was a baptizer. And uh, we could get into the issues of what kind of baptism he did. But they were at, in a river doing baptism. And yeah, it's a weird practice that comes out of John the Baptist. Baptizing and preaching repentance. But as popular as he was, he says his whole point, as, as influential as he was, he says that someone is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, this is this is when you're a servant in someone's house in this ancient culture, this is the gross job that somebody has to do when you walk in. Because you've been walking on streets with camels and everything else and donkeys, burrows, whatever. And, and they are, uh, they don't have, a, it's not the end of a parade. They don't have a pooper scooper coming after them. So it's just, the roads are just disgusting. And you're all walking in sandals. And you come into someone's house and you got to take those sandals off. And so there was a servant 
who takes off your stinky, disgusting sandal and washes your feet. And John says, as influential and as big of a deal he is, he can't even untie Jesus' shoes. That that's how big this next person is coming. John ultimately is a pointer to the coming of the Son of God. This gospel is written that we would see Jesus for who he is, the coming of the Son of God, the coming of God himself in human flesh. A point we can take from John the Baptist, consequently, if someone as popular as him, doing the will of God as, as him, is not that big of a deal, neither are we. Jesus is the big deal. <laughs> When we get, that's why we bother to read all the way through the Gospel of Mark, because I Darren is not a big deal. I sit here and lead this Bible study, but it ain't nothing if we don't see Jesus. He's the big deal. He's the one that we want to see. He's the one that we want to uh, grasp and understand and look to. So, flying through, then moving on, is there you know, baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus? There's lots of these. Um, there's more content to these in the other gospels, but, um, uh, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by being baptized. God had evidently commanded Jesus to do this. We see a picture of the Trinity here, which helps us see Jesus as the son of God. When he's baptized, what happens from the text here? He's baptized and what happens? Verses nine and 10 and 11. Heaven splits. Holy Spirit comes down. A voice comes from heaven, which would freak you out, I think. And, and the voice says, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We want to read this. This is historical narrative. So, I mean, it needs to kind of hit us like this. If you were sitting here, you would have heard this voice say, this is my beloved son coming from, I don't know where, in whom I am well pleased. God is showing up. The Son of God has come on the scene to the, to the extent that God is speaking from heaven. Listen up. This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. A statement of approval to Jesus. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus then goes off into the wilderness. So much we could say about this. Again, we're trying to do a chalk line here. As the second Adam, he goes... Adam, you remember, went and was in the garden and was tempted and he failed, right? Jesus doesn't go into a garden, goes into the wilderness and is tempted and he succeeds. Adam is in the garden, has all the food he could desire to eat and yet eats the food that God says not to. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting, we learn from the other gospels for 40 days, has no food. Satan tempts him to turn bread, stones into bread and, and Jesus um, doesn't succumb to the temptation. Jesus is the better Adam we see coming on the scene more. And so you can dig in more into that in Romans uh, 4 and, and Romans 6, actually, I think now that I say that. Romans 5, maybe. Anyway, in there in Romans 4, 5, and 6. So <laughs> just, just read the whole book. Just read the whole book. <laughs> read the whole book. <laughs> So then now, this is the finish, just the, before we get into Jesus' teachings and healings, he begins his ministry, baptism into the wilderness, right? Verses 14 and 15. And what does Jesus do? He proclaims a message. Jesus comes on the scene and he proclaims a message. So 
And the message is, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, that's flying through introductory content. And now we get into the bulk of teachings and healings that Jesus begins to do. He begins to work teachings and healings. Mark is more on the healings and the actions, but he has some teachings in there. But a thing that I want us to wrestle with and think about is it popularized or popular Jesus comes in kind of different forms. And, and everybody kind of casts Jesus in their own light. And so when you think of Jesus, do you think of Jesus primarily as a Jesus of action? And so we have a, a social Jesus who's, who is about healing the sick, clothing the naked, um, providing for the, those in need, you know, comfort, compassion, those sorts of things. Is that primarily your vision of Jesus? Or are you on the side of Jesus was a, was a preacher of righteousness? And so he always, he had a message and everywhere he went, he was preaching the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He was always in arguments with the Pharisees trying to set them straight. What's your view of Jesus? Healer's your view? Okay. Well, that's the reality is he's both. He, and what we see from the gospel of Mark is that he is both. Jesus, and we want, to, we want to be careful to not favor one side or the other of who was. We want to see Jesus for who he really is. Does he work miracles? Yes. <laughs> All kinds of healings coming up here. Does he teach controversial things? Yes. Does he call people to repent? Yes, which means he is calling out sin, which means he is saying there is a righteous way to live. So Jesus has both uh, declaration and demonstration. Declaration and demonstration. And, you know, there's a social gospel that's out there that just wants to emphasize the demonstration of the gospel. And so we're just all about social needs and meeting people's social needs. And it's good and right to do that. But it's off-centered it's off, uh, off and off-balanced to totally get away from the declaration of Jesus to repent the kingdom of God is or repent and believe the gospel. So we have both these things going on. So on the second page of our outline there, we've got four more things. <laughs> so Jesus, well, the first one's pretty easy. We won't go. Jesus comes with a new teaching with authority. An interesting reality we see here is that the presence of the supernatural realm. And this makes us uncomfortable in our modern culture in America, the reality of an unseen realm. But when we talked in our last Bible study with creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, in that creation, God creates all things seen and all things unseen, Colossians talks about. That there is an unseen realm. Evil spirits are not just a thing for Halloween. They are real. Demons... Demon oppression, these things are real. And to their ancient minds especially, we don't, I don't know, I don't have the answer to this, why we don't see as much of that today. If we lived in a uh, not as developed country, you see a lot more of demonic activity. If you were to go to, I've got friends that, that go on mission trips to different places, to Cuba and stuff like that. He's just in Guatemala and there's different stuff. I mean, Africa, there's, there's interest. I don't know. It is. I mean, 
partially, oh, okay, my speculation, I'll speculate since you asked me, I'll speculate. <laughs> C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's, it's all about this, it's, it's from the perspective of a demon training another demon how to uh, basically uh, get this Christian to not believe. And, and he's, one, of the, and he, one of the statements in it, I can't quote it, was essentially that the greatest, one of the greatest lies you can uh, convince a Christian of is that I don't even exist. And so there's a chance, if I were to speculate, that Satan isn't um, helped by having a big supernatural um, thing going on in the front lines of American culture because then it would force a lot of us modern Christians to actually realize that maybe there is an unseen realm. And Satan is safer, or maybe he's playing his angle better to just be like, they think I don't exist. They think the supernatural realm isn't real. They think there aren't ultimate realities. So if I stay quiet and let them not realize it, they're never pressed to a, a um, decision point, a fork in the road. That's totally speculation though. So that was, I have no idea why it is, but it just is. We, we see Jesus show up and this, this ancient culture would have been totally befuddled by supernatural things, demons uh, possessing people, making them sick, uh, causing them all sorts of trouble. Jesus shows up and what, what they had no idea how to handle, he rebukes and it leaves them. He has an authority, he has a teaching with authority is what they exclaim, right? In verse uh, 27, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Jesus has authority. He says to his disciples, he, he, we have a couple of instances here where he's calling disciples. He says, come and follow me. And what do they do? Follow they do it. Do it. And that's not, it was not a normal thing back in that day. You had, a, you had a, a, a scribe or a teacher that you would choose to follow. You would like, oh, I really like this, this uh, leader. I'm going to follow him. And you would decide to become a, a scribe or a disciple of him. But Jesus is saying, you, come follow me. And people do it. He has a teaching with authority. He produces radical followers. The disciples leave everything and follow Jesus. Now they go back and they fish some more and stuff. So it's not, you know, but, but, but Jesus is after radical followers. Sometimes we hear the word radical and it comes to religion, and we think it is not safe to get radical with your religion. Because, we, well, we think uh, holy war on one end, but we also think some of the nut bars who are, you know, picketing parades and just spewing hate and stuff like that. But uh, the question I would ask is, is there a problem that they have become too radical or that they have become radical about maybe the wrong thing? And that is there that Jesus is calling for radical followers who are giving their entire lives to him. Jesus is going to call us to take up our cross and follow him, which is basically to die, give up yourself, and to follow him. And he calls, and people listen. He's teaching with authority. We'll not probably get to fasting or the Lord of the Sabbath, but I do want to get to the forgiveness of sin. So this uh, cleansing of the leper, the paralytic, this is chapter 2. You guys have heard the story of the man, right? And Jesus is likely at his house in Capernaum. Um, he has a residence there of some sort, likely. 
and he returned to comport. He was at home, it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, right? So he's got a, a modest place there where maybe he hangs out at least in Capernaum. But they're gathered there together and he's teaching. It's too crowded. And these men bring their friend and they, they open up the, the roof and they lower this man down to them. The man's a paralytic. What's he want done? Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, hey, uh, this guy's a miracle worker. Get me to him. I want to walk again. What does Jesus say to him when he's lowered down in front of him? Now, if that were us, about that point you'd say, uh, great. Uh, that's not what I'm here for. Uh, can I walk, please? Uh, you know, it's like, I guess that's nice. All right, thanks a lot. But something's going on here, right? I mean, this, there's something going on. And, and the guy we see does get healed, right? There's this question with the uh, Pharisees. But Jesus is after real need. Um, there's perceived need and there's real need. So if I could do anything with personal application tonight, it is the question of, we all come with perceived need. And the question is, is are you coming to Jesus with just a perceived need or with what is your deepest need? And what Jesus is going to deal with you on is your deepest need, is your deepest need. That, you know, we often come to Jesus as a means to an end. And Jesus is not going to do that. That's not what he's about. He's not a means to get you somewhere. He is the end and he is the means. And what he's trying to do is bring us back to himself. And what he's doing with this man is he's addressing what is primarily important in his, in his life, and that would be that his sins are forgiven. Now, but in that process, also, with his sins being forgiven, mm -hmm. he was able to walk again. Yes, he does, and and well, Jesus. The Pharisees question him, right? And they say, "Well, what's you know, what do they accuse him of? What do they accuse Jesus of?" That's in verse six or seven. Why does this man speak like that? What's he doing? Speaking for his sins, but not alone. Right? There's that, that fancy word, blaspheming. <laughs> That's all right. Blaspheming. <laughs> when you blaspheme God, it's taking God's name in vain. It's presuming upon God. It's speaking for God when you shouldn't. And they get right to the issue. Jesus, in forgiving sins, is claiming to be God. Why would this man be able to forgive this guy's sins? He doesn't know this man. He's been lowered down through his roof, and he says, I forgive you your sins. Don't you think there'd be people like maybe if they knew? I mean, first of all, it was perceived that if you had an illness, it was because of a sin in this ancient culture. But how can Jesus forgive sin? He doesn't know this man. This man likely has never sinned against him on the earth. You know, it's not like he spit on him when he was outside or something like that. It's, you know, and he's greedy. You know, I forgive you your sins. Jesus, in this forgiving of sins, is claiming to be God. That's what the big point of this is. The Pharisees get it. We don't get it when we read it. We're like, what's the big deal? Well, he's claiming to be God. That's what this gospel is about. It's helping us see Jesus. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> and when we gather, and the reason why it's all about Jesus, is he is somebody special. And it's not just a leader of a new religion. We don't just think he's a, a wise teacher. Jesus shows up, he says, I'm God. He's not, he's not wishy-washy about his claims. People will say, the people who want to have a social gospel and talk about a, kind of a liberal stance on the gospel, 
that Jesus would be astonished that people worship him now. Well, no. Jesus was saying, listen up, I'm God. And they say, you know, he says, which is easier to forgive sin or to say to, say to the man, get up and walk? And well, it's easier just to, you know, you're all talking, no show. He's like, all right, well, I'll show you too. And guy gets up and walks. And so he kind of is like, you know, calling him, he's raising the stakes there. But they see and are amazed. Huh? Calling their bluff. They see and are amazed and they glorify God. They glorify God. Jesus making a, a, a just straight up claim he is God. Fasting is down there. New wineskins, old wineskins is kind of interesting. Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. Great statement in here. Those who are well have no need of physician. But those who are sick, I came out to call the righteous or those who, who assume they are righteous but to call sinners to myself. So there's this constant testing we'll see in the Gospel of Mark of the Pharisees against Jesus to the extent that hey, they get done and uh, where was that at? Is it clear at the end? That they even go and they, they, they get together with the Herodians. Yeah, it's at the end of chapter uh, verse 6 in chapter 3. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. These people are ultimate enemies, Pharisees and the Herodians. That's the Roman people. They're the enemies. And they're conspiring together to get rid of Jesus because they're so mad about what he is doing in his claims to be Jesus. And there's this building conflict between them. So that's the breakneck pace through the Gospel of Mark because it is now time to finish. So... Um, Things that popped into your mind here just in our last couple of minutes that you think that's interesting. What's more on that? Something along those lines. Anything? I'm owning my awkward pauses tonight. So... Anyway, my, my desire as we fly through this, and our prayer needs to be, help me see Jesus for who he really is. That's, that's all I want for us. It's, all I want, it's what I want for me as I sit here, as I read this book. Help me to see Jesus for who he really is. Not gather life applications. The biggest life application is seeing Jesus for who he is, and it will influence and impact every other area of our life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you just for the chance to gather here tonight with these people. I pray that as we leave this place, having read uh, a large portion here of the Gospel of Mark and kind of ran through it again, um, bring to light in our, in our minds the, the things you'd like for us to, to think harder on and to really wrestle with, that God, we would see you for who you are. We want to know you. We want to be followers of you and that requires that we know who you really are. Give us eyes to see you. Give us hearts open to what you want to do in us and just um, draw us to yourself, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, 
See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Hello? Hi. Hey.